focus Didn't you know this mission is hopeless? Stood up for power, didn't get no win But sing at your slogan, switching the open the door, yeah, I don't know, yeah I listen closer, get it in focus Didn't you know this mission is hopeless? Stood up for power, didn't get no win My signature slogan, switching the open the door, yeah Good morning, and welcome to episode 865 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by our supporters at Patreon, as well as the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hey, Ben. Hello. How are you? Okay. Good. Hey, do you uh, got anything to talk about? Well, one quick announcement. Sounds like sort of a presumptuous announcement, but I'm going to make it anyway. Anyone who wants to buy a signed copy of our book, signed by both of us, I'm not saying our autographs are worth anything or a a valuable item to own in this world, but if our book would be more valuable to you with our signatures in it, you can now buy that. We weren't sure how we were going to work that out because Sam and I are not in the same place and it's difficult to sign the same book when you are not in the same place. But the Sonoma Stompers are selling some signed books, and you can get them now. Just go to the Stompers official site, stompersbaseball.com, click on Fan Shop, and it's the first thing listed there. They should ship around the release date, which is just a couple weeks away. And if you want us to write something other than our names, you can write a message or something in the notes and instructions box when you check out. And if you pick up a second item of Stompers merchandise when you buy the book, you can enter the promo code book sale to get $5 off of the book. That's my announcement. Great. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Well, listener Andrew Patrick, and I believe Patreon supporter Andrew Patrick, tweeted at us to call our attention to a Jim Rome tweet, which <laughs> I thought was amusing. Um, so Jim Rome tweeted something that Rockies manager Walt Weiss had told him, and the tweet is, Walt Weiss told me, quote, I think you can make an argument that Nolan Arenado's may be the best player in the game right now. And Andrew brought this to our attention because it seemed to fall into a new category. We have talked about rumors that don't reveal anything, and this seems to be a compliment that doesn't reveal anything, or at least Andrew was asking us if it was. And he's asking us that because of how many qualifiers are in the quote. So there is, I think you can make an argument. So he thinks you can make an argument that Arenado's maybe the best player in the game right now. So at least three qualifiers in that compliment. Is that still a compliment? Well, it is fun to parse. I will, I will acknowledge that uh, once you see, this is like one of those, you know, 3D pictures. Once you see it, uh, yes, it is amusing, but you would, you do have to parse it. It, it scans perfectly fine when you're just hearing it or when you're reading it on first blush. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is, for instance, I would say that this is no less uh, egregious than hundreds of other things that I have said on this podcast. Uh Even when I was stating something in what I felt was a bold manner, it is still quite common, I think, to, I mean, I'm doing it in this sentence. I just said, I think it is still quite common. I think. Yeah. Really every sentence is prefaced by an unspoken, I think. Right. And so while I agree, I'm glad this was pointed out. I applaud uh, Dave Brown, I think is the one who, uh, who Mm -hmm. tweeted the, uh, the number of qualifiers in it. Yeah. Good, good work. Good, uh, good looking out. 
but it is a little bit different. It, it, I'd say it's significantly different be, than a non-revelatory rumor uh, because it is mostly a play, uh, a, um, an, an observation about the squishiness of language. I mean, I think is just a verbal tick, right? Mm-hmm. People start every sentence with I think. You, the second person personal pronoun, Dave Brown pointed out, and again, perfectly parsed uh, job, but using the second person personal pronoun does not literally mean you. I think you could do it. We, we use you as a synonym for I quite a bit, uh-huh. you know. I just said, you know, see? Um, And so then we've got two more, and they're essentially redundant. I don't think that he is layering them on top of each other. I don't think he's intending to multiply the level of doubt or or even worse, make the doubt exponential. He's simply saying the same thing twice. So when they're separated by uh, within the sentence, but it is essentially simply repeating himself. You could maybe make the argument... And maybe the best in yeah. his mind, I think that he's just repeating himself. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't think that it, it is a um, it's amusing. I don't think that it can sustain a genre the same right. way that non-revelatory rumors do, because those really truly are what we say they are. They are they yeah. are news. They are presented as news and they offer literal nothingness. Yeah. And I think Weiss probably accomplished exactly what he wanted to with this statement. He wanted to pay a compliment to his player without saying something wrong. I mean, if he had come out and said Nolan Arenado is absolutely, definitely, no doubt the best player in, in the game, then I don't know, maybe we'd be making fun of him for that statement because it's probably not the case right now. I, th- I do think, though, that you... I have just structured the sentence in exactly the same way that he did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I maybe I'm just sympathetic to him because I have the same uh, affliction. Uh-huh. Uh, he and I have the same disease. But you can't make that argument. And that's I think that's <laughs> maybe the, the sort of hidden second level of objectionability to this is that there are four qualifiers in a way to obfuscate the fact that he is saying something absurd. Nolan Arenado is incredible. You can yeah. absolutely make the case that he is a top five ball player uh-huh. in baseball, which a year ago would have seemed absurd. And you could also make the case that at least at his position, he uh, relative to his position, he might be the best defensive player in baseball. He's not as good a defender as Anderson Simmons, but he might be a better third baseman or he, he might be as good a third baseman as Simmons is shortstop. Um, if you told me, if you put together a blog post showing me that Nolan Arenado was the third best player in baseball, I would not rule that out. He is absolutely not the best player in baseball. Right. There is no argument for that. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. No. I don't think you can do it. You can't maybe do it. You can't even put together an argument. Probably not. I wouldn't try Unfortunately. Okay. Being close to something is not the same as maybe being all the way to something. That's true. <laughs> you know, there's sometimes there's uncertainty. You're like, uh, hey, where's that horse off in the distance? Is that horse past the barn or on our side of the barn? And you're like, I can't tell. It's close. He could be either one. But sometimes, like, it doesn't matter how close he is. You can tell that he is not there. Yeah. For instance, if you are on the horse... <laughs> and you are an inch from the barn. There is no uncertainty. And you can't say, you can make an argument that he's actually to the barn. Mm-hmm. You can't. No, not unless you want to go down to the quantum level or something. 
<laughs> yeah. But yes, I know what you mean. It's like whenever whenever someone is close to that highest level, we say they're in the conversation or something, but they're yeah. not really because they're they're close to being in the conversation, but the conversation is really only two players. Yes. Okay. All right. Maybe um, we should have that conversation later this week. You think we should have a Trout Harper conversation? Maybe. It's been a while. It's about time. I don't have a... I'm we'll not see. sure I have a, anything new to add. I don't know. I think Harper may have turned another corner. You may, can you turn a corner after turning a corner? Sure. You I just don't want to turn. Higher. Just don't turn four. Yeah, you don't want to turn all the way around. Yeah, unless you're <laughs> turning left and right. Right. Um, we don't have to have that conversation right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So we're going to continue ways baseball is different this year. Okay. Um, and these are a little bit different than the nature of la- of yesterday's. These are a little bit more play indexy. And there's three, maybe four, that I want okay. to talk about. To recap, sacrifice bunts seem to be way down, way down from last year. Shifts seem to be way up again, even more than last year. What else? Intentional walks, way down. Way down. And I think that's Strikeouts. all. Strikeouts. Strikeouts, Strikeouts are way up. up. Yeah, way yes. up. Not just mm-hmm. up. Way up. Yeah, up would not be news. Mm-hmm. So this one is, uh, everybody probably should know game score. Game uh-huh. score is a metric that Bill James devised long ago to sort of say in one number how good a pitcher was in a game. And it basically starts with, you know, every pitcher who starts starts with 50 points. And you get a certain number of points for every out you get. You get docked a certain number of points for every base runner and run. You get points for strikeouts. And the deeper into the game, the more your points add up. And so, like, uh, you know, if if you get 100 you're in the conversation for the greatest game of all time, the greatest start of all time. But 50 is 50 is average. 60 is, uh, you know, as a, 50 is roughly a quality start. 70 is a great start. And so I, I looked at game scores over 75 this year. I don't know why. I don't know why I thought this is going to lead somewhere, but I, <laughs> I did it anyway. I looked at game scores over 75 through team's first 10 games. And so 2016, I, I just went back to 2010. So of course, you know, you, you want to keep it within your era. And 2016 had the fewest such games in, uh, since 2010. And the drop from last year was huge. Last year, there were 26 in the fir- in team's first 10 games. This year, there were 10. There were only mm. 10 great starts in the first, what is that, 300 games. Uh-huh. There were only 10 great starts in the first 300 games, which is, you know, like I I just said, it's a drop of 60% from last year. Vince Velasquez's start was worth at least 10. Uh, Well, Vince Velasquez is one of the 10. Vince Vince Velasquez leads, has the highest game score in baseball this year. Mm -hmm. But uh, the average over the six years preceding was around 20. And, you know, last year there were 26, which... It isn't, I don't think it's, well, I wouldn't have said it was a coincidence that last year was higher than the average and that 2014 was higher than the average too, because uh, you get credit for strikeouts. It's, uh, you know, it's still a, it's a pitcher friendly era still. uh, And uh, it's a strikeout friendly era. And so I'm trying to figure out if you can come up with any plausible reason why there were only 10 great games in the first 10 days of baseball. Teams being more conservative with pitch counts and innings, not leaving guys in as long. Yeah, could be possible. You do get points for innings completed, but, and but would it? But since last year, well, yeah, that's that's abrupt. I don't know why it would happen so suddenly. 
I don't know why either. I'm going to see. I'm going to update it. I'm going to update it through the first 12 games. And I'll go back further. I'll go back to 2005. Since 2000, yeah, so through the first 12 games, it's still way lower. It's less than half of what it was last year. It is higher than 2006. 2006 was the trough. But otherwise, every other year is quite a bit ahead. It's four behind the next lowest year. And the average now is, you know, 22, 23, uh, and there have only been 14. Uh, so you think it's it's being more conservative. So how could we search this? Check innings per start. The way we would probably do this is to see if there are more six-inning or fewer scoreless starts. All right. That seems like a fair proxy for this search, right? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go innings less than or equal to six, runs equal zero in team's first 12 games. Everything else is the same. And there are, uh, actually, there were more last year. (laughs) There were more short, great starts last year than there were this year. There are more this year than there are in the typical year, but very barely. Okay, so it's like basically tied with 2014, tied, but, you know, really below 2015, more or less tied with 2007. It's, yeah, there's, I mean, I don't think we're surprised, but if if short scoreless appearances is a proxy for teams being more conservative with pitchers throwing a great game, because even if they're more conservative in general, and we're actually going to get to that too, but even if they're more conservative in general, it doesn't really matter. We're, we don't care if they're more likely to pull you when you've given up three runs uh, through five and a third and your pitch count is getting high. We only care if they're going to pull you when you're really dominating because we're looking at the shortage of dominant starts. I could do the same thing, but instead of innings, I could do pitches. I could maybe mm-hmm. say scoreless innings, and I'm going to say pitches at 100 or fewer. How many of those? So the same number, uh, one more this year than last year. There were 34 pitchers who were pulled when they were throwing a shutout and had thrown 100 or fewer pitches. This year, there were 33 last year. There were actually more in 2008. It, it's pretty close to the norms. So I don't think we can say that it's that. So All I right. think that I think genuinely we're not seeing as many good starts. The six innings thing, by the way, I've removed relievers and you'd be surprised. But in fact, that changes the numbers because <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> there are 800 pitchers who threw scoreless appearances in fewer than six innings. Anyway, the point is, it's not that big a number. Offenses up a little bit because last right. season was kind of a split split season almost in terms mm-hmm. of scoring like True. at the all-star break people started hitting home runs True. i wrote about that recently and scoring was significantly up so that raised the overall average from last year but i think this year's april is higher than last year's april okay so we have one of two answers here one is that this is nothing that if three more pitchers had happened to throw great starts i wouldn't have even noticed and mentioned this the other is that, in fact, we are seeing the offense of the second half last year uh, has carried over. And that, in fact, it is a tougher pitching environment. And these great starts disappearing are the canary. Yeah, I would guess that it's partly offense. All right. I don't have any idea. Okay. I like those starts, though, and I'd like someone to bring them back. <laughs> All right. Okay. The third time through the order pitching change. Uh-huh. Okay. So... We all know that the third time through the order effect is much more well-known than it was five years ago, that some managers last year even seemed to be leaning heavily on it in Tampa and Chicago. Uh, Russell Carlton 
uh, wrote a great piece about the Rays doing it. Uh, I think people wrote about how the Cubs had done it and uh, set themselves up well for the postseason when Joe Madden could pull, you know, Jason Hamill without, uh, you know, looking weird. So it makes perfect sense that third time through the order pitching changes, which is essentially when a starter gets pulled, you know, after facing 18 batters or close to that, even if he's doing okay, uh, would be up. In fact, they're not up at all. Ben, I was surprised by this. I looked at pitching changes. Uh, I looked at starting pitchers who faced 18 or maybe 17 to like 21 batters. All right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So basically a third time through the order pitching change with a little wiggle room on either side. And there are 44 this year, but there were 42 last year, 43 the year before, and 46 the year before that. So it is squarely in the middle. It is in fact the mean of the past four years worth of TTO pitching changes. Okay. That seems weird. When, didn't you feel like there was a trend happening? Yeah, there certainly seemed to be. I Last mean, it was... year we were talking about this as though it were absolutely a trend happening. Yeah. If, well, not it, sweeping, it... yeah. if not sweeping the league, at least clearly there were a couple of teams that were prioritizing this. It had entered the conversation. It was a strategy that essentially did not exist before and that is now you know, fairly close to the mainstream and that in particular, I, I feel like front offices would consider it a fairly uh, non-controversial strategy. And we saw that front offices seem to be getting their way with sacrifice bunts and intentional walks. Uh, and yet not on this, a totally, total illusion, no growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the Rays were clearly the ones embracing it most fully. I think it was really like the Rays and then a step down to anyone else. And that may have partly been because of the personnel problems that they had. They lost some starting pitchers. They were shuttling forgettable relievers to and forth from AAA. And that seemed to be partly based on not wanting hitters to face the same pitcher three times, but also just not having pitchers who were good enough to do that. And maybe now they have better pitchers and feel less need to do that. And, and the Royals were another team that seemed to sort of be doing it last year, but that was also probably, it seemed like at least as much because of the way their staff was constructed, just having that great bullpen and having a pretty lousy starting rotation for a World Series winning team. So I don't know if their starting pitching has been much better than that this year, but it seemed like it was a combination of, it seemed like teams that were in a position to take advantage of it were taking advantage of it, maybe more so than they would have in the past. But it didn't seem to be spreading like wildfire. I would expect it to continue, though. So I would have expected more rather than less. Yeah. By the way, uh, just to be clear, the numbers that I gave by year are through teams' first 10 games. Uh -huh. Yeah, so last year the Rays over the entire season uh, led baseball with 26 of these starts, 17 to 20 batters faced. 26. The Cubs were right behind them with 24. The Rockies and the Phillies were kind of right behind them, but presumably for different reasons, just because yeah. their pitchers were bad. Yeah. Uh, the Rockies at 21, Phillies at 18. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, basically then there's almost no separation with the rest of the league. There's a little bit. I mean, there's a lot, but they're clumped together between, you know, 16 and nine, basically instances of this. So then let me see this year. Let me see if the Rays have simply quit doing this. Uh, so thus far in 2016, the Rays have only done it once, and the Cubs have done it nuns. Uh -huh. uh, so that seems to be significant. They I, I, Probably enough 
to explain why there is no growth, even though perhaps there is throughout the league, if that makes sense. That uh, maybe every all the other 28 teams are sort of nudging up in that direction, but the uh, Cubs and the Rays, as the uh, you know the ones who are carrying the weight, have not. The Brewers have four, and in fact, the the Brewers have four, and two of them look like they are this. That they are once was a five inning one run outing, and another was five innings scoreless. Uh-huh. Um, so maybe the Brewers, with their new GM and all that, maybe the Brewers will be the standard bearers this year. I don't know. Would you expect the total this year to eclipse the total of last year? Well, I probably would have said so if you would ask me a month ago. Yeah. But so, uh, but yeah, I mean, the Rays rotation right now is Archer, Odorizzi, Ramirez, Moore, Smiley. At this time last year, I don't know what it was, but it was less impressive, I think. If you have those guys, then maybe you're less reluctant to do it. Uh, okay, yeah, last year... 387. So yeah, last year was a record. And in fact, I don't, this might just be the general trend that never stops of starters going less deep into games. Yeah. Uh, and also to some degree throwing more pitches and, uh, you know, pitching for strikeouts. Uh, and so having to, even if they throw as many pitches, not going as deep. But if you look at the year by year, last year was a record for these type of starts. The year before that was the previous record. Uh, and um, from 2010, uh, last year was uh, like a 35% increase over the you know over where it was five years ago. So there was movement toward this, although we don't know if it's movement by strategy or movement by that's just all pitchers can do these days. But it's probably strategy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's clearly identifying the third time around, although some would argue that it has nothing, that it shouldn't be the third time around, that it's more about... Fatigue and less about how many times the lineup actually turns around. But let me bring this back around. You say that you would have expected more this year if I'd asked you two weeks ago, but now you're agnostic. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say early season fluke of the numbers, and it will break last year's record. Okay. All right. And then somewhat unrelated, somewhat related though, uh, is the four out save. And this is actually more about last year than it is this year. Last year, the four out save came back. I don't know if you were aware of this. Uh, The four out save had been on a very steady decline, four or more outs for years and years and years. And it reached like there was basically never a year it went up for, you know, decades. And it reached its low in 2014. There were something like 70 four out or more saves. And then last year, 2015, all of a sudden the trend reversed. It went up to 110. There were more than 50% more four out or more saves overnight. And that trend seems to be holding this year. And it seems relevant, especially because we've been talking and at BP, we've been writing about various ways that the closers have been used in less traditional ways this year. So in Atlanta, uh, Russell Carlton wrote about how in Atlanta, their closer, Arotis Fiscaino, is explicitly not limited to the ninth inning, that he will come into the eighth if that's when the best hitters are coming up. Yeah. Uh, And so that basically is a full assault on the notion of your closer being the guy who gets the saves. Uh Uh, This is what people have been clamoring for forever. uh, And it seems like Atlanta is at least trying it. 
this early in the season. In Houston, as we talked about, the Astros took their best reliever, presumably. I think in most people's views, their best reliever, perceived to be their best reliever, and didn't even make him the closer at all. Kept right. him in a kept him in Ken a Giles. Yes, Ken Giles kept him in a more flexible non-closer role. And so that changes the nature of the closer as no longer being your best reliever. And now we have the four inning save. And so last night, for instance, uh, Craig Kimbrell came in in the eighth inning to get a four out save. And um, this is even though the Red Sox have one of the great, maybe the great, well, one of the great setup men in baseball, Koji Ohara. Uh, but uh, he brought in Craig Kimbrell. He is not alone in this decision. It is roughly tracking with the rate of four out saves that we saw last year, uh, which is up from previous years. And uh, I just wanted to know if this is convincing to you. How much is it up? Uh, how much is it up? Well, so I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to talk about last year's because last year's we have the full, the full year and the trend was already there. So in 2000, there were 280 such games. Drop, 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 drop. In 2010, so a decade later, there were 117 such games. Drop, 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 drop. In 2014, there were 77 such games. And then last year, it went from 77 to 116. So it basically undid five years of drop and went back up to the 2010 levels. Uh It's a little bit noisy this early in the year because this doesn't include blown saves. It doesn't include situations where the closer is brought in in the eighth, but then blows a save. And since we're dealing with such small numbers, one or two of those being converted changes the on pace numbers by a lot. So I don't have an exact number for 2016, but you know, tracking with last year. Uh huh. Well, I think I buy that. It, it was a trend, a steady trend in the other direction for so long that maybe I should wait for more evidence before saying that it's reversed itself. But then again, it had been so steady, right? It had never come up again. Had it really ever interrupted the downward trend with a year that was up? I think there was a year that was that was an outlier that that went so far down that uh-huh. it then kind of uh, regressed a little bit back to its current track. But it's a uh-huh. a fairly straight line down. Well, I'll say real. Okay, so I I mean I agree. I think real as well. But the I think the larger question, the more significant question, is we've now seen three models for how teams this year uh, and last year are chipping away at the closer idea, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something something about the closer idea that is um, useful for the manager. It's predictable. It accomplishes some things. And there are things that you don't want to throw out. But on the other hand, there are restrictions that it creates that you don't want to have to deal with. So we've seen these three models for how teams are chipping away at that notion. And I wonder which of the three you think is the most compelling going forward and will win. The one where you do have a closer, but maybe not 100% of his games have to be save situations. Maybe like Vizcaino, it can be like 90%. And he's prepared. He walks into the, the, the building on game day prepared for it to be a little different today than it was yesterday. He basically knows his role but he's a little more flexible or the Giles method where you just don't even put a tag on your best pitcher. You just don't even let the notion of the save pollute his brain. You tell him uh, that every day is going to be an adventure 
uh, and let's say fluid. Or the third one, which is essentially we do everything just like we always have, but we arrest the restriction on how many batters the guy can face, basically. And we keep you just a little bit longer. Like you're the same guy, but your arm has to be a little more stretched out. And it's more of basically what it is, is it's more playoff baseball throughout the year. Yeah. But otherwise it's the same. So which of those do you think is going to win? Or do you see a way that they can be synthesized into um, something altogether different? I don't think the Giles Gregerson model will win because, I don't know, as Russell Carlton often writes when he writes about these things, it's sort of the uh, American male culture lends itself toward hierarchies and toward identifying who the best is, who the top dog is. And I think bullpens kind of want that. They kind of want that order. They want that pecking order. They want something to aim for. And so I don't know whether they would go for a situation like that where the best pitcher kind of has an amorphous role and, you know, isn't isn't pitching in the highest profile situations or is pitching at various times. I mean, you could rebrand it as just he's the best, so he comes in whenever we need him. I mean, that's the old school idea. So I guess you could do that, but that seems like it would take a while. That would be the the biggest lift, I suppose. So I think probably the path of least resistance is the four out or five out save, right? I mean, that seems like the easiest and fairly efficient, you know, not, not bad. I mean, getting more out of those guys is a good thing. Everyone can approve of that. And you'd think uh, you'd think that would be easier to do. It's still often a save situation, or it's you know close to one. So that seems to me like the easiest to adopt, and you know a pretty pretty good compromise, pretty good stopgap solution. So I could imagine that being more widespread soon. On the other hand, it counteracts the decades of increasing specialization. So that's yeah, a, a powerful force. It seems to be the one thing that goes against the reasons that we play the game the way that we do today. Like the flexibility that the Giles model or the Vizcaino model offer uh, was not lost by necessarily by design, but was lost as kind of collateral damage to this notion of having... Um, an unstoppable closer at the end of the game. Like you can, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And I think that uh, to some degree, managers simply saw how good Dennis Eckersley was, or how good these closers were, and wanted that, and needed that, and were were willing to give up the Vizcaino and Giles pursuits uh, in order to have that. And if you could marry that with also a little more flexibility, I think managers would like it. It just, it was too hard to figure out how. The other thing is it's easier to figure out like the Viscaino model. You kind of have to do some mental math or you have, you at least have to look at who's going to be up and, you know, project the batting order and matchups and that sort of thing Well, a little bit more than you do if it's just like, well, we're going to bring this guy in in the ninth. So we'll just bring him in and out earlier. I'm not that fond of the Vizcaino method either because I do want my closer or my best reliever, I want my best reliever to be in at the biggest moment of the game. That That is true. 
but it's less about wanting him to face the best the other team's best players as it is because everybody can do damage you know the Mm -hmm. number eight hitter can still do damage and if you're letting him bat against the worst you know a a lesser pitcher it's just more likely that that guy's gonna hurt you and so there is an advantage i mean russell showed it was small very small very very small right there is an advantage if you if you actually lay out the matchups you do you do clearly want your better pitcher to face the better hitters. There is a mathematical edge, but it's tiny. So when when I say that I want the best pitcher in for the biggest moment, it is the bases loaded moment. It is the runner on third, one out moment. And for me, that's less about who's batting and more about the game situation. And it doesn't seem like that's exactly what the Braves are trying to do. They're more looking at, you know, it's still fresh inning. It's just which fresh inning do we want him uh, to, to come into? And uh, my desire to have him come into the bases loaded situation, uh, even if it's the sixth, is especially challenging because then you've got the whole warm up situation. Are you warming him up in the sixth? After you've warmed him up, can you not use him? Uh, how long do you have to know? Your, uh, how long does it take for him to warm up, etc. And so uh, it really is probably a, you know very complicated. And like you say, it's fairly simple to say, oh well, you know, it's the eighth. I'm starting to get really scared. I think I'll bring in Kim Roll. <laughs> warm him up because once you warm him up then you're using him yeah uh all right um so that's it although i will just very briefly quickly say that uh wild pitches are up and walks are up uh, which are uh the wild pitches i think we talked about last year makes sense the better pitchers are the harder they throw the more movement they have you would think the more wild pitches as well as the more they pitch for strikeouts you would think the more wild pitches but they are up just for the record and walks is surprising walks would reverse a trend since walks have been going down uh but walks are going up uh this year and i don't know if that's an april thing or not all right okay so that is it for today you can support the podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com effectively wild today's five listeners who have already done so christopher von brecht michael mandelbaum 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 i'm sure michael's never heard that before bertiel spolander Ray Conger, and a man known to me only as Martin. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, which comes out May 3rd. If you don't have your calendars handy, that is two weeks from today. As I mentioned, you can get an autographed copy on the Stompers website, stompersbaseball.com. I will link to that at BP and in the Facebook group. But you can get a clean copy without our scribbling at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookstore. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild and rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP. And you can send us emails at podcast at baseballprospectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. If you have questions, send them now because we will be back tomorrow with a listener email show. Good morning. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do that again.